Squared. Good afternoon and welcome to the Catholic Opinion. My name is Father Anthony Sumich of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. Let's begin today's show with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Amen. Let us pray. O God, who taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of the same Spirit we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. So once again, uh, welcome everybody to our show here, The Catholic Opinion. As I said, my name is Father Anthony Sumich. I'm a priest of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, working here in the Auckland Diocese under the invitation of Bishop Patrick Dunn and our order, the Fraternity of St. Peter, provide the sacraments in Auckland in their traditional form. And therefore, uh, the, the Mass is celebrated as the ancient Latin Mass and uh, we say our Sunday Masses, if you're interested in coming along, we have sung Masses on Sundays at St. Paul's College in Richmond Road in Auckland at 9 o'clock in the morning. And our daily Masses are celebrated at St. Anne's Chapel in Tiaratu South. And the daily Masses and the times of those daily Masses, you can find these on our website, which is fssp.nz. So f ssp.nz to see all our mass times confessions are daily we have adult apologetics adult catechism preparation for the sacraments such as confirmation first communion baptism and marriage prep as well so a couple of things we've got coming up in the near future this coming sunday sunday the 29th of november we will be having Oh, sorry, we'll be having the Sacrament of Confirmation being given by Auxiliary Bishop Michael Geelan, and that will be at St. Paul's at 9 o'clock, so everybody's welcome to come along. The Bishop will be conferring confirmation on 12 young uh, adults and one grown adult, so um, that Mass at 9 o'clock. Also coming up, and not much later, um, is going to be on... Saturday the 12th of December. On that day, uh, the, the Saturdays of December are, as most Saturdays are throughout the year, dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary. But in December, because Masses are raised to a slightly higher rank on regular days of the year, the so-called ferial days, normally there is a set ferial day Mass or the previous Sunday Mass, which must be said during Advent, but the Holy See is granted to the Fraternity of St. Peter permission to celebrate the Rorate Mass, so-called. Now, the Rorate Mass is a Mass in honour of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and specifically on Sundays during Advent, and this particular Sunday, the 12th of December, we're going to be celebrating the Rorate Mass at St. Paul's Chapel at 5 o'clock in the morning. Now, that might seem a little bit extreme to some of you, but this is a special Mass in that the Rorate Mass, obviously uh, originating in the Northern Hemisphere where they are entering deep winter and the sun doesn't really come up till a lot later, but the Rorate Mass will be celebrated in church pre Dawn and the church will be lit only by candlelight, so no electrical lights used in the church. Large number of candles up on the altar, large number of candles throughout the church as all the faithful hold candles as well. And one of the more beautiful masses of the year, a beautiful sung mass. But the atmosphere in that mass is we uh, 
see this ideal that the Blessed Virgin Mary is heavily pregnant at the moment and she is like a candlelight giving light to the world before the true light, which is the Son, the Son of Justice and the Son itself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ comes amongst us. So this beautiful symbolic Mass, 5 a.m. on Saturday the 12th of December at St. Paul's. So come along. It is something that people who do uh, attend it never regret getting up that early. They say it is such a beautiful Mass to attend and therefore encourage a lot of their friends to come along as I encourage you to come along. And if you have been to one of those, one of these in the past, then let a lot of your friends know about this because it is uh, assuredly a really beautiful Mass and a great one to give honour to God with. So moving along, I'm going to continue with our history of the Catholic Church in today's show. Last week... Uh, we've been also talking about that. We finished up with the uh, somewhat odd suppression of the Templars uh, by the Holy See and also the tr- resumption of the trial on, of Boniface VIII, the um, already deceased Pope, and the interruptions that were going on constantly between Philip IV, the, the, the King of France, uh, and also the Holy See. Uh, we didn't quite reach, but I'll just quickly touch on it now, uh, about Philip IV. He condemned the wives of two of his three sons for adultery. He was very heavy-handed. He imprisoned his daughters-in-laws for the rest of their lives while mutilating and burning to death their lovers, and thereby helping to assure the end of his own dynasty by a lack of heirs. To say that his behaviour indicates a lack of affection between father and son is surely an understatement. Philip IV eventually died as he had lived, closed within himself, bitter, hating relations, a hating man, relentless and above all cold, cold as the mountains of the moon. And the damage that he had done would live with France and the church for generations. And also Emperor Henry VII uh, had already died prematurely in August of 1313, of malarious, which was so often fatal to Germans in Italy while leading an army against Naples. And the alliance with Naples had disintegrated along all with all of Henry's grandois' dreams for Italy. So the division between the Guelph and the Ghibelline had proved unbridgeable. Uh, these two factions that were always fighting for the papacy and control in Rome itself. Uh, so that would carry on, unfortunately. And at one time, Henry VII had reached Rome and the city was split by ferocious street fighting so that he could not get to St. Peter's, but he had to settle for being crowned in St. John Lateran by his supporters of the College of Cardinals since the Pope had refused to come. So in all of this, Europe was in pretty bad condition and uh, above all of uh, these things was the incredible, remarkable and very sad removal of the popes from Rome to Avignon in south of France and this move of the popes to Avignon in France where they maintained their residence for the 72 years from the consecration of Clement V to the return of Gregory XI to Rome was a grave error of judgment. Though not the unmitigated evil um, that it would be calling sort of things like Avignon was a hell upon earth, it was definitely a, a, a very, very poor judgment on behalf of the popes uh, to, keep, to keep the papacy there because the pope belongs in Rome as every visitor to St. Peter's knows there lie the bones of the prince of the apostles Peter himself and there was the seat of the ancient empire one for Christ under the sign of the cross in the sky that was given to Constantine 
Wherever the Pope may go, wandering or fleeting or driven, he remains the Bishop of Rome. And never was Rome more shamefully neglected than during these 72 years when ancient buildings were quarried for their stone and famous churches gaped open so that cattle ambled through in the very naves of St. Peter and the Church of St. John Lateran. In the tumults of the years uh, that we've been speaking about, many popes had been unable to maintain a continuous residence in Rome, but none remained far away for long. The definitive transfer of the seat to Avignon by an unbroken series of French popes, with only an occasional vague mention of the possibility of returning to Rome, not only aroused profound resentment in Italy, but called into question the Pope's impartiality as the spiritual leader of Christendom in every country whose interests clashed with those of France, most notably England, as the Hundred Years' War began its long and bloody course. Most of the Avignon popes were not, however, in fact excessively deferential to the kings of France. Even Clement V, weak and often overborne by Philip the Fair, was not his creature and resisted him to the best of his limited ability. Clement V's successors, John XXII and Benedict XII, were no man's puppets. And even a cursory review of their character, public statements and policy makes that very clear. Of all the Avignon popes, only Clement VI comes close to fitting the scenario, which is not surprisingly drawn by Italians, of the Avignon popes as lackeys of Paris. But their official residence exposed even the best of the Avignon popes to the constant suspicion of such subservience, accentuated by the splendour in which they lived and what Ludwig von Pastor calls the deplorable worldliness of a backwater provincial town suddenly become a new Rome. The destination of a steady flow of rich ambassadors and rich gifts from all over Christendom. The problem was accentuated by the fact that throughout the years the popes were in Avignon, return to Rome was not an easy option, even when it might have been sincerely desired. The bitter hostility of most Italians to the French popes would indubitably place them in a serious physical danger if they came to live in Rome, or indeed anywhere in Italy. And Italy, still the prey of the endless strife of Ghibelline and Guelph, superimposed on its division into many quarrelling city-states, was in serious disorder, with several substantial wars usually going on at any given time, both among cities and within them. A long-range undertaking was required to pacify Rome, and its immediate surroundings begin the restoration of the city and create goodwill toward the Pope. Return to Rome had become a fixed papal policy with a high priority. For the first 50 years of the Avignon papacy, unfortunately, there was no such policy. Now, partly due to the displacement of the papacy, but also for other reasons, Christendom was in the first half of the 14th century, was in a condition of malaise. We've been speaking about this over past weeks uh, after the glories of, the Christ- of Christendom in the 13th century, but the 14th century was no such time of glory. There were no great saints and no temporal leaders with broad vision. The ablest of these temporal leaders was Edward III of England, a splendid knight and remarkable strategist. But he rarely, if ever, looked beyond the interests of his own crown and kingdom. The four kings of France who succeeded Philip the Fair lacked both ability and vision. 
the dream of a great crusade, long a sustaining and uniting uh, enthusiasm of Christendom was dying. The Holy Roman Emperor was again at war with the Pope. Only in Spain did crusading sparks still fly up in flame. After two long royal minorities, during which Castile was preserved from anarchy or disintegration only by the moral prestige of the, the widow of Sancho the Fierce, the strong and serene Maria de Molina, and her grandson Alfonso XI, the Avenger, resumed the reconquest and made notable advances in it. The summer of the year 1315 was marked by exceptionally heavy rainfall. Almost constant rains saturated the ground and the absence of sun greatly inhibited the growth of crops, leading to severe famine whose effects, particularly in northern Europe, lasted for several years. Under these circumstances, the history of the first half of the 14th century was a rather formless character. Despite the handicap of their Avignon residence, the popes were able to maintain and even increase the centralisation of the government of the church. But Pope John XXII, approaching his 90th year, took one of the most imprudent actions in the history of the papacy by bringing a heresy up for discussion with the statement that he thought it true, but was not sure. Later, he recanted it on his deathbed. The only great causes were the reconquest in southern Spain led by Alfonso XI and the attempts to achieve and to resist Edward III's personal and national ambitions in Scotland and in France, while, which, while dramatic, had at this time no great significance for Christendom as a whole. In the east of Europe, Catholic Poland was growing in unity and strength, but the Byzantine Empire was steadily weakening, and that strange and dangerous people, the Ottoman Turks, soon to build an empire, made their first appearance on the historical stage. Through these disparate developments, we shall wind our way through the 14th century. Now, Pope Clement V died two weeks after Easter in the year 1314, and the conclave to elect his successor assembled at Carpentras in the Venaissin, just a few miles from Avignon early in May. From the beginning, it was apparent that the cardinals were so badly split that no candidate could gain a majority, let alone two-thirds. First, there was a party of ten cardinals from Gascony, which had been Pope Clement V's home territory and was ruled by the English king, Edward II, but under feudal homage to the king of France. These cardinals had been appointed by Clement V and wished to elect one of his two nephews, Pope. A second party, consisting of all the seven remaining Italian cardinals and three French cardinals supported Cardinal Guillaume de Mandago of Languedoc in southern France. And a third group, consisting of six French cardinals unconnected with Gascony, remained uncommitted. When the deadlock had continued into July, Gascon gangs appeared in Carpentras and attacked the houses where the Italian cardinals were staying, killing some Italians, setting fire to parts of the little town and looting others. The Italian cardinals consequently fled from Carpentras, refused to return and declared they would not recognise any Pope chosen in an election in which they did not take part. The Gascon and Italian cardinals continued to defy one another throughout the remainder of the year 
1314 and the whole of 1315, unable even to agree on a place to reconvene the conclave. Finally, in March of 1316, under a solemn promise that there would be no more violence and that they would not be forcibly confined, the cardinals agreed to meet again in the city of Lyon under the protection of the Prince Philip of Poitiers, the brother of King Louis X of France. Just as the cardinals were at long last about to resume their conclave in June, Louis X, the colourless eldest son of Philip the Fair, suddenly died at a relatively young age. He had a daughter who was still a little girl but no sons. However, his widow was pregnant. If she bore a son who lived, he would be the undoubted successor. And if not, or if she bore a daughter, Prince Philip might succeed since France had never had a royal minority or a reigning queen since Hugh Capet founded the ruling dynasty more than 300 years before. Philip wanted very much to be king, but he also wanted to influence and, if possible, control the election of the Pope. Since he could not be in both Paris and Lyon at the same time, he broke his promise and shut up the cardinals in the Dominican convent at Lyon on June 28th, hoping that would pressure them into making a decision. And it seems as, well, as if it did. All through July, various candidates were proposed but failed to gain the necessary two-thirds majority. Finally, the Italian cardinals split between adherents of the ubiquitous Colonna and Orsini. The Gascons and Napoleon Orsini then gave their support to Jacques Duez, who had held a multitude of offices, both secular and religious, including Bishop of Avignon and Chancellor of the Kingdom of Naples. He was favoured by Prince Philip and appeared sickly at 72 and unable to live long. So the Cardinals believed they would have another choice soon. In fact, he was extraordinarily vigorous and lived to be 90. On August the 7th, the remaining opposition to him collapsed and he was elected unanimously, taking the name of John the 22nd. Despite the unanimous vote, many cardinals, including some Gascons, remained dissatisfied with him, which suggests that Prince Philip may have brought more pressure to bear on the conclave than was recorded. There were even report, reported plots to poison the new pope. But if Prince Philip wanted a subservient pope, he miscalculated badly. Pope John XXII was a decisive, though sometimes very imprudent and courageous man, very much alive to the importance of the full independence of the head of the church and also a highly efficient administrator. He was consecrated in Lyon on September the 5th. The new pope immediately had to confront two contenders for Holy Roman Emperor. Following the sudden death of Emperor Henry VII of Luxembourg in Italy in 1313, the seven-man college of imperial electors had split 5-2 to two in October of 1314 in favour of Duke Louis of Bavaria over Frederick of Habsburg, Duke of Austria, son, of heir, son and heir of Emperor Albert and grandson of the loyal Catholic Emperor Rudolf. Louis had been crowned Emperor Louis IV at Aachen at the traditional place and with the traditional ceremony. But Frederick defiantly had himself crowned by the Archbishop of Cologne, the traditional crowner of emperors, at Bonn. At that time, the papal office was vacant. When John XXII became Pope, he clearly preferred Frederick, whose family history demonstrated consistent support for Pope and Church. But the greater part of Germany accepted the choice of the majority of the electors, and John XXII's only action at this time was mildly to urge the two claimants to settle their differences peacefully. 
what could possibly go wrong. However, in the following year, John 22nd issued a decree claiming the right to govern Italy during a vacancy of the imperial office, maintaining that a vacancy now existed because he had not yet confirmed either Louis or Frederick as emperor. So in view of the recent recent history of the papacy and conclave to elect John 23rd, went, 22nd, when so much hostility to Italians had been shown, Italians were especially unlikely to look with favour on such a claim. But the Pope firmly pressed it. He further proclaimed that those who had been appointed to office in Italy by the late Emperor Henry VII must now be confirmed by him. In December 1317, he began canonical proceedings against Matteo Vicconti of Milan, probably the most powerful individual in Italy north of the Kingdom of Naples, for continuing to use the title of imperial vicar. Vicconti had led a campaign of ghibellines and against Guelphs in the spring despite the pleas of two papal legates in northern Italy that keep the peace. He dropped the title of imperial vicar but kept his power and his aggressive policy. The Pope excommunicated him as a usurper. Meanwhile in France, the widow of King Louis X had born a son who was King John I for five days and then died. Prince Philip pushed aside the claims of Lewis's little daughter Joan and on January the 9th, 1317, was crowned King Philip V. The next month, he had an assembly of nobles in Paris officially proclaim that, quote, a woman cannot succeed to the Kingdom of France, unquote. This was to have more significance in the near future than anybody imagined at that time. Over in Great Britain, the English, under the ineffective King Edward II, remain unable to reverse the verdict of the Battle of Bannockburn. The Scots harassed England's northern counties and in 1315 sent an army to Ireland under Edward Bruce, brother of their king, Robert Bruce, who won several victories and cut a swathe of destruction across Northern Ireland. In May 1316, Edward Bruce was crowned King of Ireland at Dundalk. The Irish had deep and long-lasting grievances against the English invaders. In 1317, Donald O'Neill, supporting Edward Bruce, voiced those grievances in a remarkable petition to Pope John XXII, calling his attention to the blatant English discrimination against the Irish and the contempt for Irish customs and for the rights of the Irish church displayed by the English government in violation of Pope Adrian IV's bill, Laudabiliter, which Henry II had used to justify his initial invasion and which the English continued to cite. Because of these wrongs and of the numberless others, which it is beyond the power of the human mind to readily understand, I'm quoting now uh, the Irish um, contact with the Pope. Because of these wrongs and of numberless other things which it is beyond the power of human mind to readily understand, and also on account of the kings of England and their officials and the perennial treachery of the English, of the middle nation who were bound by decree of the papal curia to rule our nation with justice and moderation, and have made its destruction their wicked objective, and in order to throw off the cruel and intolerable yoke of their slavery and to recover our native liberty, which for a time through them we had lost, we are forced to wage war to the death against them. The Pope turned O'Neill's letter over to Edward II and asked him to look into the charges. And it does seem that there was some easing of English oppression in Ireland as the century went on. 
But as ever, the Irish were unable to unite. And in the devastation wrought by Edward Bruce, turned many Irishmen against him. In October 1318, he died in battle near the place where he was crowned. The Scots had a stronger sense of national unity and outstanding leadership in their king, Robert Bruce. At Arbroath in April of 1320, the noblemen of Scotland declared to the Pope their loyalty to Robert Bruce and their determination never to accept English rule. Pope John XXII replied to them promptly, though evasively, in August. In October 1322, at Byland in Yorkshire, Robert Bruce won another striking victory, routing an English army with a howling charge by his Highlanders down a Yorkshire moorland ridge. King Edward II barely escaped capture, and the Scots seized all his personal belongings, equipment and treasure. A 13-year truce between England and Scotland was signed the next spring. Though Edward II still refused to recognise Scottish independence, he promised not to hinder the Scots from obtaining absolution from the Pope and the lifting of the excommunication of Robert Bruce and the interdict placed on their country as rebels against their so-called rightful overlord, the King of England. Edward II broke his promise, but the next year Pope John XXII began addressing Robert Bruce as King of Scotland for the first time. However, it was five more years before the Pope finally relented and lifted all ecclesial ecclesiastical penalties against Scotland and its king and people. Pope John XXII displayed a much more sympathetic interest and a keener sense of justice and his strong and continuing concern for the development and rights of the Catholic Kingdom of Poland, long cursed like Ireland by disunity and strife. In the evocative image of Norman Davies, for the past two centuries, the struggle of trying to reunite the piast principalities of Poland resembled a game of primitive pinball, where each player sought to roll half a dozen marbles into their numbered sockets, while his adversaries, as they barged, whilst his adversaries as they barged and rocked the table, tried to do the same. Persevering through a welter of civil wars and assassinations in which he was beaten again and again in exile for several years, a prince named. Vladislav Lukatiek had finally secured Krakow in the year 1306. Though hard hit by a rebellion in Gdansk, or as it is known, it was known by the Germans Danzig, and Pomerania two years later, in which the rebels requested and received help from the so-called Crusading Order of the Teutonic Knights, here fighting against fellow Catholics, unfortunately, and overwhelmed troops loyal to him, look at Lukitiek had gained recognition as the Duke of all Greater Poland by the year 1315. Since the assassination of King Vaclav III in 1306, Poland had not had a king. Vladislav sent ambassadors to Avignon, who in 1319 obtained secret letters from Pope John XXII consenting to his coronation. He did not wish to make his position public yet because of predictable opposition from the Teutonic Knights and their strong support of the famous knight-errant King John of Bohemia. He also appointed three Polish bishops to judge whether the Teutonic Knights had a right to control Pomerania, who two years later ordered the Knights to return Pomerania to Poland and pay Poland an indemnity of 30,000 marks. On January 20, Lukatiek was crowned King of Poland at Krakow's hallowed Wawel Cathedral. 
These years also saw the emergence of a new core, the core of a new European nation with the formation of the Swiss Confederation. Following a surprising victory by the Swiss mountaineers of the three forest cantons over the army of Duke Leopold of Austria, brother of the imperial claimant Frederick, at Morgarten in November of 1315. Leopold recognised their independence three years later. So that's the situation that we find ourselves um, at this particular time. And we're going to, we've only got a a minute or so uh, left in the show today. So we're going to pull up stops there as we want to uh, give enough time at the end of this to remind everybody about uh, the situation of the confirmations that will be held at St. Paul's College Chapel uh, this weekend, Sunday the 29th of November at 9am Bishop Michael Geelan conferring the confirmation and then following after that there will be a solemn Latin Mass with the Bishop assisting in choir but he will not be celebrating that Mass so everybody is welcome to come along to uh, that event which should be um, a wonderful event for those being confirmed and all those who will be in attendance. A reminder you can find out about the Work of the Fraternity of St. Peter on our website here at fssp.nz. That's fssp.nz. And also on our Facebook page, uh, FSSP Auckland. So all the details of the Apostolate, the times of Masses coming up, and especially the reminder about the Rorate Mass, the pre-dawn Mass at 5 a.m., on Saturday, December the 12th at St. Paul's College. And please put that down in your uh, calendars as something really to come along, even though it is at 5 o'clock in the morning. It's one of the most beautiful Masses that we can attend. So let's conclude with a prayer now. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May God bless you all, and we'll hear and see for you next week.